I'm, I'm going start. To, I'm going to do the radical thing of just closing this computer and putting it to one side. And um, there we are. That's done. Uh, it's really wonderful to be back at Libri. Thank you, Clark and Julia, for inviting me to speak here again. Well, here isn't quite the right term. Um, I'm really grateful that you decided to move Libri from Bone Island to somewhere 20 minutes from my front door. Um, that's very convenient. Thank you. I live in Sydney now with my wife, Janet. Um, one of the nice things about speaking at Libri is you never know who's going to show up. Um, Julia indicated yesterday that there would be a small gaggle of high school students who would show up, and I don't think they did. So, um, <coughs> so I completely rewrote the lecture today so that it would be accessible to high school. At all. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't all that much. Um, However, uh, when I was launching this book over at Regent College, this book, by the way, Show and Tell, um, it's a little book. I'll be telling you a little bit more about how it came to be, and it's called The Tao of Right and Wrong. Um, this Chinese character is the character for Tao. Any of you to speak Mandarin or read Chinese? It's just as well, because uh, I can say anything I want to say. <laughs> anyway, that's the character uh, for Tao, and I'll be saying more about what that means in a moment. But when, uh, and it was published at Regent College. So we had a book launch at Regent College two months ago. And, uh, and in the audience there, there were people who... Um, I speak Chinese, and so I have to sort of make my apologies. One of the uh, things I have to tell you about the title is that now, in official transcribed uh, Chinese, the system that's known as Pinyin, in Pinyin it's spelled D-A-O. Some of you may know that. And it's pronounced Dao rather than Tao. But there's a long tradition in English of books with titles like the Tao of Physics or the Tao of Pooh, P-O-O-H, as in Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> um, and different books like that. So we stuck with that, with that tradition. But at the book launch, an old friend asked me afterwards, who's, who's really the ideal audience uh, for this little book? And I said, well, actually, I think a bright first-year university student who's just coming to university studies uh, for the first time. Um, but, you know, of course I want it to be read and loved by everybody. Um, and so I, I brought this along. You don't have this in your library yet, do you? So this, this is for your library. But I'll, I'll keep it for show-and-tell purposes until the end of the talk. Um, one of the things that, that Clark sends around to potential speakers is instructions. And he, he actually instructs people to give lectures. So for better or for worse, this is, this is a bit of a lecture tonight. Um, even though I don't have my crutch. And so some of, the, some of the, it was mainly verbal stuff anyway, which doesn't go well on PowerPoint. Um, so let me begin with a little bit of a background about my book, The Tao of Right and Wrong. 
uh, subtitled Rediscovering Humanity's Moral Foundations. 75 years ago, in 1943, in the war years in Britain, a scholar named C.S. Lewis gave three lectures that he then turned into a short book called The Abolition of Man. And its three chapters were titled, respectively, Men Without Chests, The Way, and The Abolition of Man, which gave the book itself its title. And the subtitle was, this isn't very memorable, so you have to stick with me. Reflections on education with special reference to the teaching of English in the upper forms of schools. <laughs> well, I, I always like to point out that C.S. Lewis was by trade an English professor. Uh, you might know him better as the author of the Narnia Tales. He was one of the 20, 20th century's greatest Christian apologists. And I was, you, you all know this, but I was going to tell the high school students that an apologist for Christianity isn't somebody who, in a sort of Canadian way, goes around saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but somebody who, who, who sets forth reasons for the faith. So, I mean, in my own modest way, I'm a Christian apologist. I suspect Clark and Julia are Christian apologists. It doesn't mean that they're particularly apologetic people, maybe they are. Um, in The Abolition of Man, however, Lewis mentions only once in passing that he is a Christian. Yet despite this work's lack of openly theological language, it has been ranked by some, including Lewis himself, among his most significant achievements. The book offers a compact argument against what Lewis calls moral subjectivism. And today the more common and, and slightly broader term is moral relativism. Lewis argues that genuine humanity is threatened by such relativism and therefore that opposing it must be part of the duty of a true educator. And as you know, um, he was making reference to the upper forms of school. We would say you know, grades 11 and 12. So those who aren't yet at university. Of course, not everybody goes to university. Most people these days finish high school in one way or another. But uh, so, it's, so that was his target audience. Well, so because given that this was such a good book, why didn't Dennis Danielson, in light of the importance of that message, simply go on a mission to get more people to read Lewis's original little book instead of being so uppity as to attempt his own version of it. Well, actually I did do this in a way. In the autumn of 1977, um, before a lot of you were born, when I taught my first ever university English course at Stanford, The Abolition of Man was the first text that I assigned. I just wanted students to read it. And I got them all to write a precy or a summary, an abstract of the first chapter. And you know what it's like if your teacher or professor gives you the job of writing a precy. You've got to understand that chapter or essay that you're precying. So this was my sort of, wasn't quite underhanded. It was perfectly legitimate. C.S. Lewis is an English prof, as I told you. But uh, it got everybody in this, what used to be called freshman class, at Stanford 
reading C.S. Lewis. And actually, to my surprise, um, the students took to the book quite well. Now, these were the days before Amazon.com, and one of the students was so enthusiastic about it that he came up to me once we'd finished reading, asking me where he could find another copy because he wanted to buy a copy for his mother for Christmas. Mm -hmm. That was quite touching. Uh, but that was 41 years ago. And remember that the subtitle of Lewis's book was Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English in the Upper Forms of School. It, it's, not a, it's not a hook. Um, I'm guessing that most people in North America today wouldn't know what the upper forms of school are. So about three years ago, I... <laughs> This is something that happens when you when you get older. I mean, the book of the cosmos is... You can sort of tell, as as I go along, my books get shorter and shorter. <laughs> um, this one I published when I was about 50, and this was more like 54. Um, but, you know, I turned 65 a couple of years ago, and I thought, I want to take on a project that I can finish. Um, so I, I came up with the idea of, of doing what in the movie business is known as a remake. You know, you, the Seven Samurai become Magnificent Seven, and um, you cinematophiles know examples that I couldn't come up with. Sometimes the remake results in something completely different, maybe not even recognizably a remake. Sometimes it's really lame. Um, there's a whole range of results from remakes. Anyway, that's what I wanted to do with C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. If I had my PowerPoint here, I'd, I'd show you pictures of the original 1943, <coughs> excuse me, and the second edition, 1944 editions of The Abolition of Man. They're really sort of tatty, poor quality paper. It was war, war years, of course. Uh, but if you wanted to buy one now, it would be about $500 because they're collector's items. This is not $500. <laughs> so I, I started attempting this remake. Um, Janet was out of the house and in England waiting for the birth of our third granddaughter. Turns out she was a granddaughter. Um, so rather than just making a groove in the floor, pacing back and forth, waiting for this child to be born. She was overdue. Uh, I focused my mind and, and started writing this book. It was about two and a half years ago. And then uh, for the first chapter, I really followed Lewis kind of paragraph by paragraph. I wasn't doing a paraphrase of him, but for organizational purposes. Thanks, Clark. Um, I, I was following him as closely as I could. And then my book developed its own momentum and I got deeper and deeper into examples of the corrosive relativism of our own day. Anyhow, if you read Abolition of Man and The Tao of Right and Wrong back to back, you'll see the family resemblance. Uh, but you'll also see that my volume, I think I can claim, is more than just a clone, even though we're working on the same side of a massively significant argument. So what is that argument? Well, what I offer, 
to put it most simply, is a case for moral realism. Um, I always apologize. It's really hard to make moral realism entertaining, but it's, it's really important. Um, and in so doing, I employ both in my text and in the title a useful piece of vocabulary borrowed from the abolition of man, this word, the Tao, which serves as a shorthand for the transcultural fund or reservoir of teachings that is the source of moral judgment, of codes of ethics, and of standards of right and wrong. The word bespeaks something universal. And while it obviously derives its form and part of its meaning from Chinese philosophy, it is not intended to evoke Taoism as such. By the way, I've already mentioned that the correct pronunciation is actually Tao rather than Tao. So let's, for tonight's discussion purposes, bring into the open the position that I'm suggesting we need to oppose. Lewis called it subjectivism. I've already called it relativism. The third leg of this three-legged stool is naturalism, and they're really they're, they're joined. We need to bring them into the open, not only because they continue to be so powerful, but also because they're so powerful that sometimes we don't even recognize how dominant they are. They're sort of the, the air we breathe, culturally, socially. So let me illustrate with reference to two recent bestsellers by prominent proponents of the prevalent. Just later, if you want it, mm -hmm. if you get tired of standing. Am I showing my age or what? <laughs> <laughs> no, it might be. Thank you. Have a deep breath. These days, I'm, I'm really feeling my age. Forty-nine. <laughs> um, in 2016, the, a well-known physicist by the name of Sean Carroll published a much acclaimed volume called *The Big Picture* on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. Now, I thought some of my titles were a bit uppity, but that's, that's a, a bold title. In this book, Carroll declares, quote, that meaning, morality, and purpose are not built into the architecture of the universe. They emerge as ways of talking about our human scale environment. He says, science couldn't care less about how we ought to behave because the source of these values isn't the outside world, it's inside us. Carroll rejects what he calls our folk ontology, folk ontology, according to which meaning might be given by God or inherent in life's spiritual dimension or part of a teleological inclination built into the universe itself, or part of an ineffable, transcendent aspect of reality. But in place of such myth-making, Carroll promotes what he calls poetic naturalism, which, quote, rejects all of those possibilities and asks us to take the dramatic step of viewing meaning in the same way we view other concepts that human beings invent to talk about the universe. 
Well, despite dressing up his bleak doctrine with words like poetic and dramatic, I'm, you know, I'm a literature prof, I kind of resent the scientists borrowing <laughs> words like poetry and drama and using them for polemical purposes. But of course, he also uses the word scientific. Carroll offers conclusions that follow ineluctably, not from empirical evidence, but from fervently asserted naturalistic premises. So by naturalism, I refer not to a literary or artistic style, and definitely not to the practices of those who prefer to go about wearing no clothes. <laughs> I'm speaking rather of philosophical naturalism, the position dedicated to excluding anything supernatural or transcendent in one's explanations, and committed to focusing exclusively on natural properties and causes. The pattern of thought we see in Carroll is a familiar and unrelenting one that emerges whenever a hardcore naturalist tackles questions about meaning, morals, purpose. Back in 1977, Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg wrote near the end of his famous book on the origins of the cosmos, the first three minutes, that Quote, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. But of course, I think it's not surprising that a rigorously physics-based study of the cosmos might end with the conclusion that there's nothing behind or beyond or above or below it. That's just how methodological naturalism proceeds. And so the innocent-looking naturalism present at the start of the argument emerges at the end of the argument as a thoroughgoing philosophical naturalism. So it begins, let's pretend that there are no forces in the universe other than natural forces. Let's pretend that. And we do a lot of work and scientific work, good scientific work. And then at the end, clear our throats and say, actually, that's all there is. There is nothing that's not part of nature. Um, when it comes to deep meaning and principles of right and wrong, philosophical naturalism demands a search for something social, psychological, biological, physical, etc., that underlies them. In other words, it treats moral principles not truly as principles. I and mean, this is the pedantic English professor in me. Principle means something that's at the beginning. something that's foundational, something that comes first, something that does indeed stand behind or beyond or above or below the contingencies of human behavior, something that guides the decisions and judgments we make concerning those things. Naturalism, by contrast, drives us to explain morality, virtue, standards of right and wrong, shoulds and goods, in terms of something it imagines or assumes is even more basic, by which it means more physical, more natural. And some of you know that physis is the Greek word for nature, from which we get our word physics. So such assertions of naturalism 
are actually not restricted to physicists. The other best-selling book I want to refer to is by historian Yuval Noah Harari. It's called Sapiens. Some of you may have seen it in the bookstores. It's a true bestseller. Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. An entertaining read, but it offers a similarly reductionist and naturalistic account of all things human. Harari comments on the United States Declaration of Independence, which you're familiar with even though we're in this country. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And Harari sort of sniffs and says, just as people were never created, neither, according to the science of biology, is there a creator who endows them with anything. There's only a blind evolutionary process devoid of any purpose. Also, according to Harari's sweeping history, what does give us humans a sense of meaning, of purpose, and sustains the social order are a series of mere inventions, what he calls imagined constructs, myths and fictions, and a network of artificial instincts called culture. Harari wields his naturalism to attack not only religion, but also the idea of human rights and the belief that every individual has a sacred inner nature, indivisible and immutable, which gives meaning to the world and which is the source of all ethical and political authority. That's a quotation from Harari. He views such tenets as a mere incarnation, I'm quoting him again, incarnation, reincarnation of the traditional Christian belief in a free and eternal soul, a belief that he treats as thoroughly undermined because science, this is still Harari, scientists studying the inner workings of the human organism have found no soul there. It's really just a breathtakingly naive. Um, as, as if anyone who is a theist or a Christian or a Muslim, for that matter, said, you know, you just take, take a part of a human being and you'll find a soul. In short, as one reviewer of Harari's book comments, central to Harari's argument is a total eclipse of the human person. Well, I think the total eclipse of the human person nicely recasts Lewis's phrase, abolition of man. In the absence of strong moral realism, we are left with effectively only one option a moral nihilism, nothingism, literally, that evacuates all transcendent meaning and purpose from the world and from our species. In particular, today's social sciences almost uniformly, well, there are exceptions, but almost uniformly treat morality as relative either to nature, instinct, biology, evolutionary psychology, etc., or to culture or society naturalistically conceived. The problem here is that the more thoroughly the naturalistic social sciences explain such parts or manifestations of nature, the more these, like Weinberg's universe, seem ultimately pointless. For if value, purpose, and a substantial ought 
are banished from your premises and assumptions, then inevitably those things are also absent from your conclusions about life, humanity, and the world. And likewise, inevitably from the education you offer in your schools and universities. Well, someone might, of course, reply, so much the worse for moral realism. Too bad for Lewis's Tao. It's not supported by science. But of course, this lack of scientific support arises from premises, from assumptions that are methodologically naturalistic. It is not a scientific or empirical conclusion. Or if it's a conclusion at all, it's one following from presuppositions that guarantee an absence of moral purpose in the findings of any science guided exclusively by those presuppositions. Well, there's a particular principle relevant to the debate about moral realism or its denial that needs to be asserted. And it's this. This is one of my one of the favorite sentences I've ever made up. <laughs> and that's that mutual repugnance cuts both ways. <laughs> Especially for those who haven't or haven't yet taken a course in basic logic, please forgive me if I introduce a few useful logical principles. This I have in PowerPoint, so you just have to listen very carefully here. Consider this matched pair of logic's most basic axioms, known respectively as modus ponens and modus tollens. How many of you have ever heard those terms before? Some of you have. Very good. Modus ponens says P implies Q. P is true. Therefore, Q is true. Ponens, it's, it's like putting something forward. And its counterpart is modus tollens. Tollens is taking something away. P implies Q, same phrase. Q is not true, therefore P is not true. So for example, um, P implies Q. Um, X is a car implies that X has wheels. It so happens that that's true. As you know, logicians don't always concern themselves with truth. But anyway, X is a car implies that X has wheels. Ah, but wait, X doesn't have wheels. Sorry. Ah, X is a car. And lo and behold, yes, it does have wheels. So that's the that's the modus ponens. Modus tollens is like this. Um, P implies Q. If, if X is a car, X has wheels. But X doesn't have wheels. Therefore, we can conclude X is not a car. So that's the kind of, it's the, it's the flip side. Those are both logical statements. And if, if they're creating too much of a mental blizzard, just we'll come out the other side. But when it comes to morality and other things that give meaning to our world and our lives, today's proponents of reductionist materialism and naturalism display a remarkable blindness to the second half of this pair of axioms. 
Clearly, if P is a set of naturalistic assumptions, and if these entail Q, a denial of substantial meaning, morality, purpose, and so on, and if P is correct and reliable, then the denial of substantial meaning, morality, purpose, and so on is also correct and reliable. Thus, we can conclude, too, too bad for the Tao. Too bad for moral realism. But, it's only fair to remind the reductionists of the corresponding axiom, modus tollens, whereby the logic of their position might work against them, because mutual repugnance cuts both ways. For if naturalistic science cannot discern or explain purpose in the world, or in our collective or individual lives, then that inability in turn applies too bad for naturalism. You and I and everybody else, including physicists, historians, and anthropologists, do have aims and goals. The very fabric of our lives is teleological, purpose-driven, in ways that far transcend the dissemination of our genes, though perhaps that's part of it. Therefore, a failure to account for that strong sense and experience of purpose, of goal-directedness, of moral worthwhileness, is a serious failure indeed. It points decisively to a limitation of science as naturalistically conceived and practiced. It offers a not cue that undermines the truth or sufficiency of the reductionist's set of assumptions, P. And let me hasten to add that this observation is in no way an attack upon science, nor a devaluation of scientists of their or of scientific achievement. It is simply a sober acknowledgement of the existence of truths and domains that for science as naturalistically practiced fall outside its sole jurisdiction. <clears throat> Mason jar. <laughs> to echo Shakespeare's Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are encompassed by the empirical method. This observation does, of course, imply a critique of what is sometimes called scientism, essentially the assertion or assumption, not itself a scientific conclusion, that the scientific method is the adequate, all-encompassing, and sole arbiter of truth and human knowledge. But to warn against such overreaching is not to take a position hostile to genuine science, nor toward its practitioners and their many wonderful accomplishments. Of course, some social scientists do acknowledge the limitations and insufficiency of naturalistic assumptions. There's a sociologist at Yale by the name of Philip Gorski who has declared we can't be complete relativists in our everyday lives. There is no escaping ethical life. And he gives the example of social scientists who, who hate data fudging and, and kind of statistical sleight of hand that they found in some colleagues' work. They're, they're morally outraged. Oops. But if you're a complete relativist, where, is that, where does that moral outrage come from? Um, there's an anthropologist by the name of Carolyn Fleur-Loban. And 
who rejects what she calls the relativist reflex to almost any challenge to cultural practice on moral or philosophical, philosophical <laughs> grounds. <clears throat> Practices such as honor killings of women. And she concludes that in the end, moral judgment and human rights must take precedence and choices must be made. I would sum that up as saying, not Q implies not P. Probably the most influential evolutionary biologist of all time, apart from Charles Darwin, was T.H. Huxley, who died in 1895, who's popularly known as Darwin's bulldog. A real character, really worth reading, Huxley, who in matters pertaining to religion was an avowed agnostic, he actually made up that term, nonetheless saw very clearly the insufficiency of evolution alone as a foundation of morals. In a lecture delivered late in his career called Evolution and Ethics, he reviews various characteristics he sees as accounting for humankind's, what he calls, success in the struggle for existence, self-assertion, the unscrupulously see, unscrupulous seizing upon all that can be grasped, the tenacious holding of all things that can be kept. In short, he says, qualities which humankind shares with the ape and the tiger, cunning, sociability, curiosity, as well as ruthless and ferocious destructiveness. However, in what Huxley sees as our now more advanced state, quote, civilized man brands all these ape and tiger promptings with the name of sins. And there is a general consensus that the ape and tiger methods of the struggle for existence are not reconcilable with sound ethical principles. <coughs> the contrast between the workings of biology and the norms of human ethics appears starkly in specific cases in the animal kingdom. Uh, not a long while ago, the journal Science reported on recent research into the social and reproductive practices of geladas. Geladas are large baboon-like monkeys inhabiting the mountains of Ethiopia. Uh, geladas live in, you can find a lot of this in, on YouTube, and so it's really worth watching. They're, especially the males are really scary looking characters. And they live in units of a single dominant male and up to a dozen females. But bachelor groups threaten and sometimes oust that dominant male. And when this happens, a new dominant male gains reproductive access to the group's females and kills perhaps half of his predecessor's offspring, while 80% of the female geladas pregnant at the time of the ousting soon abort the fetuses they are carrying, spontaneously abort, um, a similar male practice of infanticide also occurs among African lions. And whether it's among geladas, lions, or other species, such infanticide serves not only to diminish the genetic legacy of the newly dominant male's predecessor, but also to accelerate the fertility of the females, which cease to lactate and resume ovulation, so that the new infanticidal alpha male can establish his genetic legacy as quickly as possible. Those hoping to infer principles of morality naturalistically, you can see where I'm going with this, often appear, appeal to positive behaviors such as altruism, 
that appear in various animal species. However, more shocking behaviors such as lions and gelatas infanticide make such inferences problematic. Do we look to some still higher instinct that would help us adjudicate between these other instincts? Do we obey altruism or infanticide? Or perhaps which behaviors humans themselves should emulate? The point is not that animal behaviors have no relevance to our understanding of human behavior, but rather that we require a standard of judgment above and beyond, and below I might add, that offered by bare biology as a guide to what is morally permissible, advantageous, or obligatory. We do, after all, need something like Carol's folk ontology with its ineffable transcendent. Zoologists, of course, don't either approve or disapprove of infanticide among gelatas or lions. In the words of the common cliche, it is what it is. But when we turn our attention to human behavior, we do express approval or disapproval, satisfaction or disappointment, affirmative or negative judgment. Huxley sees this response as involving something of a paradox, given his convictions about human origins out of what he calls the cosmic process. At some point in this process, he says, the conscience of man revolted against the moral indifference of nature. Thus, there is a sharp clash between the is of nature and the ought that we apply to human beings. And given such a clash, it again seems futile to regard that ought as something merely arising from the empirical is. For as Huxley observes, cosmic nature is no school of virtue. Frustrated as he is by the apparent gulf between nature's is and moral realities ought, at least Huxley doesn't dogmatically seek to reduce the latter to the former. For he acknowledges evolution alone is, these are his words, incompetent to furnish any adequate reason why what we call good is preferable to what we call evil. So although Huxley might not be an obvious pick for anyone's top 10 list of moral realists, he certainly offers another glimpse of the moral not cue that implies a further too bad for purely naturalistic science. Again, this is no critique of science as such. The inability of naturalistic science to account for the goods and shoulds of human moral life might instead be treated less as a failure than as a blameless omission, a mere innocent incapacity to achieve something that was never part of its competence or job description in the first place. But an acceptance of this account solves only part of our problem. We may hear the silence of science concerning ultimate moral foundations and then rush to the conclusion that goods and shoulds, statements about virtues and values, must merely be non-factual matters of opinion. And that's a really common view out there. And that disputes about moral right and wrong are unresolvable because each of us and each of our respective cultures simply view the world differently from one another. Of course, it's not empirical science itself that's to blame for this apparent vacuum within our social and educational philosophy. 
Instead, what's at fault is the assumption that if empirical science doesn't produce reliable moral knowledge, then nothing else can. One critical facet of the abolition of man was Lewis's recognition of the role that naturalistic and subjectivist assumptions play in curricular materials absorbed by students in school. Remember the upper forms of school. And thus, before many of them are even aware that anything is actually being debated. Nor has the battle over this terrain ceased. For the sake of our communities, our democracy, our human future, we need to keep asking and demanding what kinds of morals, what notions of right and wrong our schools instill in our children, often at a very early age, and what kind of reasons the young are given for being virtuous people and good citizens. If we examine standard curricular curricula mandated by governments and school boards around the English-speaking world, the picture that emerges is a discouraging one. I want to give a few examples. How am I doing for time? I'm all right. And do stop me if I'm just going off in the direction that you need to be. If you need time to catch up, just stop me. Today, dominant assumptions and de facto orthodoxies about morality are thoroughly, as I've indicated, relativistic. Judgments about right and wrong, standard curricula suggest, are determined merely by our biology or by our cultures, and of course there are many of those, or by our individual or collective emotions or subjectivities, or by some combination of these factors. The key phrase here is determined merely by. Nobody would be so foolhardy as to argue that biology or culture or emotions are irrelevant to our moral judgments. The problem arises when we treat these things either one by one or in combination as exclusive determinants of right and wrong. In this regard, a common fallacy is to recognize that we humans are powerfully shaped by nature and nurture. Sure we are. But then to slip into the presumption that morality Judgments or claims concerning right and wrong can't be connected with or rooted in anything transcending nature and nurture. So what are children actually taught in school? I, again, I regret that we don't have specimens here tonight who could tell us. Uh, I doubt that most educators deliberately aim to teach their students that statements expressing moral judgments are unimportant. Nevertheless, many standard, currently required materials support that inference. A crucial item among such materials sounds at first innocent enough. For example, the official curriculum in British Columbia titled Building Student Success has a section on competencies to be acquired in English language arts, and in this case to 11 and 12 year olds. The document mandates that students should be prompted to distinguish fact from opinion. All right. Similar language appears in the Common Core curriculum currently adopted for use in over 40 states in the U.S. In History, Social Studies 6 to 11, the reading standards for literally state that students must acquire an ability to distinguish among fact, opinion, and reasoned judgment. How could anyone object to something that sounds so reasonable? The problem arises when we examine actual teaching materials definitions, worksheets 
videos. And the worksheets, by the way, have separate columns for fact and opinion. Um, these things accompany the Common Core and other curricula like it. Some examples are more egregious than others. A standard definition of fact, according to such curricula, is that it is a statement that can be proven. Just swallow that whole. But this criterion can convey a dangerously false sense of how easy it is to establish what is factual. Whether in history or law or science, some of human beings' greatest intellectual challenges, some extending over years, even centuries, have involved attempts to discern and to prove what is truly the case. I won't do a separate lecture on Copernicanism tonight, but Copernicus's claim, for example, that the Earth revolves around the Sun rather than the other way around took about 150 years to establish demonstratively. It was no straightforward matter of marshalling scientific fact against mere opinion. To suggest that things we call facts don't entail controversy or require interpretation is seriously misleading. Current lessons about facts as taught by the Common Core and elsewhere appear even more uninformed and incoherent when we consider that our everyday usage emerged barely 300 years ago. Fact used to mean something that was done. Factum from Latin facere. Um, the closest synonym is deed. A fact and a deed, and that still lingers in legal language. Something was done after the fact, which means after the deed. So a deed required an agent, and a fact was something that was done by somebody before it became the sort of disembodied thing. And what about the definition of opinion? Distinguished from facts, opinions in the language of the common core are most obviously statements that can't be proven. Students are taught to watch out for certain vocabulary that characterizes such statements. Words like good, bad, and should. Most opinions cited in materials linked to the Common Core are uncontroversial, if stunningly banal. Repeated examples include dogs make better pets than cats, or chocolate ice cream tastes better than vanilla. And much more disturbing, however, is the way that judgments about value or morals are also mixed in with preferences for ice cream flavors and defined as opinions and by suggestion merely as opinions. One set of exercises offering a offers a paragraph about the ancient construction of the pyramids at Giza in Egypt. And students are asked to classify statements as either fact or opinion or fact and opinion. One sentence reads, to build the pyramids, thousands of laborers worked under unfair, brutal conditions. The indicated correct response is that the statement is a combination of fact and opinion, with presumably the large number of laborers being factual and their unfair, brutal conditions merely being merely a matter of opinion. I suspect that among the laborers, it might even have been a unanimous opinion. <laughs> but today's students are taught, when they're studying history, that the really important thing to look for is the facts. Most corrosive, however, is the confusion that the simplistic and philosophically shallow binary classification of fact and opinion entails for moral judgment, by which I mean not moralistic judgmentalism, 
but rather the kind of judgment you express with conviction when you declare that Mary is a good person or that it's wrong to injure an opposing player so that your team can win a game. In the teaching materials of the Common Core, statements such as copying homework assignments is wrong and all men are created equal are relegated to the domain of mere opinion. And claims of right and wrong are placed at the level of subjective preferences for one flavor of ice cream over another. Students may officially be studying English or history, but the lesson they absorb is that right and wrong are subjective. And that statements about such matters are personal, just like assertions that dogs make better pets than cats. Of course, I don't say consciously absorb. Perhaps the greatest danger of the kinds of teaching illustrated here is that its recipients are many of them 11 and 12 year olds, not young adults. Children who think they're being taught English language arts or history or social studies without any awareness, as Lewis wrote 75 years ago, that ethics, theology, and politics are all at stake. What's being put into students' minds is not a theory, but an assumption that in 10 years will condition them to take one side of a controversy they have never recognized as a controversy at all. If educators themselves truly accepted the relegation of shoulds and oughts, and judgments about what is important to the status of uncertain and unprovable statements of attitude or opinion, then there would be no point in our trying to convince them of the bad effects of the kind of teaching materials I've mentioned. For that conclusion would itself be a value judgment words like good, bad, and important, of course, marking any such claims as mere opinion. The glaring contradictions, however, between our school's curricula and their own statements of purpose, learning principles, and codes of conduct might raise the suspicion that today's educators don't actually believe or don't actually put into practice the fact versus opinion materials they're required to teach. And I hope they don't. I'm certainly prepared to believe that most educators are better than their pallid, than the pallid principles embedded in the school's curricula. But we dare not underestimate the effect over time of positions such as those implied in dogmatic naturalists' versions of science and history, and in the superficial versions of the same dogma that show up in places such as the Common Core. At very least, these assumptions are bound to vitiate educators' own capacity to affirm, uphold, and impart moral principles, principles whose denial is inevitably toxic to authentic human flourishing and to our earthly future. Efforts to thwart the spread of such poison must involve a bold assertion of the not Q, of both a philosophical and a lived moral realism that will not relent in its resistance against the ongoing abolition of man. Now I'm sort of at the end of my lecture, but I want to add a short Christian coda. Although I'm an out Christian, you may have noticed this evening I have not been making an explicitly Christian argument. And I haven't talked about its importance for Christian doctrine or for the church 
But let me end with one challenge for those of you who are interested in Christian doctrine or in Scripture. Please go and reread the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 3, and ask yourselves this. In the absence of moral realism, what sense do those chapters make? What do they say to a culture, to a society, to youth, soaked in the philosophical materialism and naturalism that today dominate the public square and choke off both Christians and non-Christians' capacity to treat good and evil as more than biologically, culturally, or subjectively constructed entities. Imagine Romans 3.23 being rewritten, for all have transgressed arbitrary and transitory culturally constructed norms and come short of the glory of God. If we ponder this question, I think we'll understand better why an assertion of moral realism is necessary and why it truly is what C.S. Lewis in his bookish way called a preparatio evangelica, a preparation for the gospel. Thank you. And I hope we can carry on the conversation. Thank you, Dennis. I mean, this is a time for conversation, um, if that's all right. Yeah, um, that's what I'm here for. You know, just to start it off, uh, you know, I, I emailed Dennis three years ago in trying to look for an article that you wrote for the Vancouver Sun um, about uh, the young man who wrote a paper on nihilism. Yeah. It seems appropriate to this talk because... Uh, and you can speak more to it, but this young man spoke, wrote on nihilism, and he ended up being awarded uh, the highest award for the essay. That's right. Yet he ended up murdering his family and himself, if I'm not mistaken, or, or he had some kind of vicious killing yeah. uh, that basically fulfilled the presuppositions he had of the paper. Yes. And you wrote the article as a, as a confessional that we often grade more on, this is not your language, but more on rhetoric and the aesthetic yeah. rather than the content of ideas. Yeah. And it was really a call, it was a bit confessional, but it was also a call for, we need to start evaluating the content of ideas, not just the, mm -hmm. the aesthetic yeah. presentation of these ideas. So how does a professor or how does someone in society, <laughs> you know, uh, make that stand, I mean... Yeah, in practical terms, eh? Um, yeah, I don't... I because don't. that was something that faced you directly. Yes, yes. And... and yeah, it was, it was a thing called the UBC essay competition. And this young man from the North Shore uh, wrote a brilliant essay explaining essentially why Nietzsche was right and why all things were permissible. Um, and as you say, then within a year or so, went and murdered his family for the life insurance that he thought he could collect. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a complete overturning of, complete ignoring of moral standards. Um, yeah, so I got as far as confessing that I'd kind of, you know, I thought this is, this is actually a brilliant essay. I completely disagree with its content, but. 
you know, in academia you think, well, this couldn't have any practical consequences, could it? And of course it did. Um, so that, that little sort of bugbear stayed with me in a way that you perceived more clearly than I was even aware of. Um, what young people, well, what all of us, but certainly what young people say and imbibe shapes lives and sometimes destroys lives. Um, what what I, I mean, it was very much arm's length. I mean, we had no, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't have phoned this guy up on the phone and asked him to come and talk to me. But if he had written that essay in one of my own classes, would I have done anything? I'm not sure. It's very easy sometimes just not to do anything, just to stand by and let that sort of thing be developed. What I would hope is that if one of my own students wrote something that was, I thought, morally poisonous, I would try to find some way of engaging that individual in a conversation. Um, but you'd be put in quite a position to, I mean, let's say that someone wrote a paper that you fundamentally disagreed with. Right. And as a professor, I, w I would think that you would have certain codes that you have to live by mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to to allow difference. Oh yes. To allow disagreement, and so I guess the personal the personal could work, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure that professors disagree with students all the time. Yes, yes, but th but that's not necessarily uh, a license to become. Kind of therapist, but but therapy is something that brings health, and um, you know I've never had that stark an example in one of my own classrooms. Um, one thing I did say to my colleagues, I guess a dozen or so years ago, I was. I was being scrutinized as the possible head of the department. I didn't have any competitors, but so like I wasn't sort of running for head, but I still wanted to go through all the hoops. And so people were asking me questions, what would you do in such and such a situation? And what I said to them, which kind of put my flag up the flagpole was, um, it wouldn't be my job as the head of the department to be anybody's pastor or imam or rabbi. But I never wanted to forget that the people I was dealing with were people with souls that needed caring for. Mm. And people thought, oh, well, that's, that's an interesting perspective in academia. But I mean, I really believe that, and I believe that that's true with teachers and, and students in the classroom um, to look at look out over a group of people and realize that each one is someone created in the image of God with potential that <coughs> defies my capacity to estimate what it is. Um, really, it's, it's an effort to sort of push through the... Um, the kind of membrane that is stretched across our experience 
It doesn't allow us often or invites us not often to go to the deeper level, to the level of the personal, to the level of the Taoists, to the level of, of right and wrong. And it's, it's really tricky because I'm sure one of the reasons why people are leery of using words like good and bad, right and wrong, is that those can be wielded uh, in a way that's dogmatic and unfair. Um, but I think we've just got to, got to, got to brazen it out. education because I think they are in school they are teaching kids what is right and wrong mm -hmm. what they believe is right and wrong and I was going to start out on the homeschooling journey with my children and my stepmother who's um, she's a good like Canadian she has quite a lot of you know typical sort of Canadian um beliefs or whatever so she was like well how are you who's going to teach your kids what's right and wrong if you don't send them to school <laughs> and I just I didn't I didn't know what I just didn't even know what to say I was yeah. and she was very thoughtful intelligent yeah. Yeah. lady yeah. I was um, thinking about your comment about the uh, the apes and how we don't um, necessarily condone that behavior in animals, we just, um, we, in your example, say it is, just it yeah, is what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But um, we do, actually, um, in our own domesticated animals, right? Like, if we see our dog being aggressive, we correct that behavior. If we see our dog um, uh, displaying activity we don't like, we correct that behavior. And I think perhaps maybe the reason why we aren't thinking about right and wrong in that example that you gave is because we are removed, right? So right, right. we're not in constant communication and community with these wild creatures where we are in a domesticated, um, civilized society where we do correct that behavior. Um, and so I, I always wonder, like, how much the, like, the problem of evil has has impacted um, animals' behavior just as much as it's also impacted ours, right? So, you know, in the Garden of Eden, um, they probably all got along and were respectful and, and not doing that type of behavior, but um, we're, we're just bucking that, um, that, that problem that has become um, a permeated part of our... Um, um, the elements that mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. just the way that things are now. That's a, a very, very interesting uh, topic. It's one that I, I it's an ongoing, I hope, friendly dispute with a friend of mine in England who, who thinks that in the eschaton, um, you know, animals will revert to a paradisal state. Um, like the one you sketched in Eden, um, and I don't have you know really firm beliefs, but it seems to me that um, the great predatory cycle of nature 
with lions and such like you know and killer whales and um, you're not really going to tell me that a lion isn't by nature a predator uh, and is going to eat grass. I don't know. I, I'm not trying to you know limit the powers of God in um, in this way, but with a <laughs> we could go down this path a long way, but. But with our with our own domestic animals, they are in some ways extensions of ourselves. There was a video that I watched day before yesterday. I think it was taken just off Oak Bay, where they were watching some whales, some uh, orcas, and it turns out the orcas were actually attacking a seal. And some of the people on the boat wanted to save the seal, <laughs> and others were saying, "No, no, no, it's not our business." I mean, if orcas are attacking a seal, it's just the way it is. Right? Um, so. I've also got a friend in England who's just written a book on um, the suffering of animals, not not caused by human beings, but the suffering of animals in out there, and, and the question of the goodness of God. So it's a it's a big thorny thorny issue, um, but you stick to your guns. <laughs> I, I I work in the school system, and I think sort of the moral apex of our liturgical year is the uh, anti-bullying kind of event. Yeah. I'm just what, I'm wondering kind of where is this, what does this mean philosophically, or what are we actually, I mean, it's a good, I'm not for bullying, obviously, but yeah. it seems like, it seems interesting that this is so clearly a moral focus in the yeah. curriculum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's, it's a, uh, it's a good observation that there are clear, relatively clear moral standards against bullying in schools. Um, I've got a little section in the book in which I talk about um, toleration, and everybody agrees that you know, toleration is a good thing, except for those who think that it's just condescending. Um, but then there's a list of behaviors that will not be tolerated. <laughs> so, so these words get, get used yeah. in, in ways that are inconsistent. Um, Anti-bullying and the whole uh, discourse of human rights, I think, are, are really valuable things. Um, I picked up a, another quotation from Lewis from another book that I read or reread since writing this one. He says something like, human rights are very good medicine, but they are not food. And it seems to me that we need a broader sense of right and wrong that can feed us. I'm not saying throw out human rights, I'm not saying throw out anti-bullying campaigns, but let's try to figure out what is it about bullying that is wrong? It's a sort of wielding of, you know, I'm just riffing on this, but uh, it's it's the wielding of power in a way that's illegitimate, right? Yeah. Well, it seems like we don't have that sort of uh, uh, sort of like fundamental sense of morality, like morality, but there's kind of this, these spasms of virtue that we have, where it's just like <laughs> we're good, we're good, we're good, don't question things, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
I like the concept of spasms of virtue, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I would, I would like, I would like to see virtues acknowledged, and this, you know, goes back to the classical as well as the Christian tradition. Um, the, you know, the classical virtues of um, fortitude and uh, and the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. It, it would be hard to teach those in a, in a straight down the middle secular school now. But, but aren't those some of the things that are underlying maybe way deep down anti-bullying campaigns? Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, actually I have a question for you, but you know, just as you said that, it's fun. I'm a teacher, first of all. I work in government now because of a lot of the silliness of what you're describing. I kind of chose to transition the time being we'll see but I have taught that to kids in the class what you're talking about the 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 virtues I forget what yeah I think because we did a poem or something okay but anyway um my question oh well what I'm okay well I'll start with just I've seen a lot of this in the in the school like I could rattle off stories all day really like there's just dissonance layered and dissonance layered and dissonance and saying one thing meaning another and on and on like um, just one example I'll give before my question is just um, I remember one year they had every year in the beginning of the year they have a what do you think's going on what do you notice in the classrooms what do you see how can we make this year better and I remember saying to uh, the colleagues at my table maybe being a little naive at the time thinking this is what it's actually for I'm like, well, I noticed that a lot of the guys in the in the classroom the prior year were getting quite. Um, they were saying some things that are that are that are you know, quite um, like we'd have multiple women's days and stuff like that, and then they look beside them in an empty desk and why are the girls not here today? Why are they not in the classroom? Oh, because we got women's day, and they're like, oh, when's the guys' day? Like, oh, we don't have that. And, and, you know, and then I'm getting comments from boys saying, like, oh, I hate feminism, this and this. And I'm like, when I was in grade nine, I was interested in girls and skateboarding. Like, yeah. ideological mumbo-jumbo was yeah, not, yeah, like, yeah. it's a really... So anyway, I, I had said to the, you know, at my table, I'm like, yeah, I'm sensing a lot of this, this, uh, this dissension. You know, and their response wasn't like, oh, okay, what's going on? It's like, well, every, every day is guy's day. I'm like, okay. You know, you're a you're a forty-year-old something who has a master's degree in social constructionist mumbo jumbo. Okay, that's great, but you're probably right. But these are teenage boys who are in class, and they, you know, let's just think with their dumb brains for a second. Yeah, yeah. They're they're in class. The girls aren't. That's it. And so, of course, you know, my idea was dumb, and I'm like, okay, well, this is something I noticed, just so to keep it in mind. And I promise, there's a question at the end of this. Um, so and that's kind of funny and I, I let it be but like a couple months later someone posted in the morning um, posters all over the school saying like it's okay to be white too yeah. right and I'm like I'm just going like who would have thunk it you guys who who saw this coming like not literally and of course I don't like you can't really say anything because it's whatever and then months later after that some boy tweeted something or on social media about it, uh, bringing a gun to school. So at that point, it was an uproar and cops were involved. And I'm just looking at all this going like, I 
tried to talk to you idiots like but you don't but so anyway it, it's so lost in this um this it is deeply troubling because it's this ideological nonsense and no principle wants to have as as crazy as they could be in their in their nonsense nobody wants you know that level of attention right no, no. so my question is all that to say my question is um what i'm finding is that logically a lot of the stuff if we were all vulcans we could pretty much figure out the problem right now it's not that tough really if you sort through things but it seems like with the new that the atheist kind of stuff um like we were talking with the huxley wilberforce the new atheist movement of like early 2000s that was like a reiteration of that like that was kind of uh, cracked open again right and what i'm seeing though is that now it's almost like okay that was good in the early 2000s now it's almost like you see people like sam harris who was one of the new atheist movement and people like Jordan Peterson kind of tag teaming yep. in different groups yep. and the new the new warfare the new uh uh um enemy is this kind of um religious fundamentalism without the religion involved in culture and that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. and it's pervasive in the school system so it's not about logic to me it's like a ideological dogma that that people aren't really aware of and they're kind of huffing the the ether so my question to you would be how do we solve that because it's not pragmatic it's not logical to me it's it's a far more ideological problem so there 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 you have well i i think i uh, at supper i overheard you talking about the sam harris jordan peterson yeah. debate and the tremendous general interest that that is created and i think it's created a general interest because these are these are deep serious issues that don't lend themselves to the kind of uh, glib response that you got when you raised the issue in your staff meeting. Um, you know, so much about the glib answers is a refusal to think carefully about something. And refusal, actually also a refusal of empathy with those 14-year-old boys. Um, you know, I'm going to fall back on the working assumption, theological assumption, that everybody you come in contact with is a creature made in the image of God. And that's a good foundation for empathy. Because it means that right away you've got something in common. So many of the polarized debates treat individuals are treated as if they don't have anything in common and they're just sort of shouting across the deep valley. So, um, so I mean, I kind of like Jordan Peterson, I kind of dislike Sam Harris, but the fact that they're debating in public, I think is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that, that will make it permissible to have serious debates about serious philosophical topics, practical philosophical topics. In, in the schools and elsewhere. Thanks makes for sharing your experience. Yeah, it makes me think of Lewis in Abolition of Man. Uh, I won't be able to quote him, I'm not a quoter, uh, unless I have it written down. But uh, he said, basically, when he's talking about in this grammar book, the Green Book, that, uh, that statements of the water, the cataract is sublime, 
is is not a statement of fact. It's a statement statement of someone's feeling. That's right. And and so it basically that's his beginning point of moral subjectivism happening at the very basic educational <coughs> level. Yes. Yes. Uh, and he said, but what that ends up leading to in the examples that they give was like a, a cruise ship. He said, you know, a better example would be this. Mm -hmm. uh, and he goes, but they use an example of a, a cruise ship and saying, well, you're not really going to have this adventure. And the person thinks that, uh, oh, I'm going to disbelieve this advertisement so I don't get followed out of my cash or yeah, something like yes, that. Yes. And so it almost becomes this knowingness Mm -hmm. Because feeling is it's merely subjective, this merely agenda, and we're just trying to play that out. And then he says, uh, which I find very profound, that they'll find themselves at the end, at the uh, side of debate, and they won't know, they will find themselves on a side of de debate with conviction, but not know why they're on that side of the debate. That's right. So when I hear Cody talking, I feel like there's naturalism is saying this is what is but what what ought is always coming through the back door uh -huh. virtue is always coming through the back door and we can't get away from oughtness right right and so we say what is in order to dismiss you know any other kind of value system that hasn't come through the back door mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i don't know who's the guardian of that door but i think that Cody's mentioning some of that is that people have very strong convictions of oughtness, but they're not really sure why. Right, right. And I and I think that Lewis really is sharp on that. And and so Charles Taylor talks about authenticity as the inarticulate debate. Like it's, we're trying to debate rationally when people don't actually hold an idea of why they believe what they believe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult to actually get into and find that common ground. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, and if you put your finger on something that's interesting in, in Lewis, the, you know, the educator's effort to inoculate young people against being, you know, hornswoggled by false advertising. I mean, that sounds like a worthwhile <coughs> project. Um, but unless you do a close analysis of what is phony about that advertisement, what is misleading about that advertisement, and you simply use a, a, a cruder instrument of you know, disbelieving whatever you hear, or as he puts it, seeing through that kind of rhetoric. I mean, as he, as he says, to see through everything is to see nothing at all. Um, so the, the effort to discern what is good and not good, to the effort to discern what is moral and immoral. It's hard work. I mean, you, you don't always just know. Even someone well-informed in, you know, classical and Christian thought doesn't necessarily, there's a, you know, to use the old-fashioned term, there's a casuistical process that has to be gone through. You know, we can sit down and discuss whether something's permissible or not. But the assumption is that we might, in principle, f figure out what's there based on true principles. Whereas if we're just skeptical about any claims about what's good or what's beautiful or what's sublime or what's worthwhile, we end up just being, we, it's, again, it, it can function as 
a certain kind of medicine against an abuse, but it doesn't give us anything to nourish ourselves with. Do you think the um, uh, argument or the there's uh, I don't know for values for morality coming forward more strongly? Have you seen that in? Because at one time it was seemed to be values clarification and relativism, and there was a silence on the other end. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's more and more people that are saying no? This is what, you know, morality has to be a conversation. Do you think that there's more of a response or coming forward? I'd, I'd like to think that there is. Um, Seems that we're and I'm not, I'm not sort of out there testing the waters any more than you or anybody else here is. Um, and I'm, I'm leery of values language. Uh, because it seems to me that it gets overused and, and feeds into a kind of relativism. Well, you know, these aren't, these aren't Canadian values, or these aren't, um, well, I mean, I guess that's the one that our Prime Minister uses. Um, well, the, but the problem is, you know, I mean, if, if, if there are Canadian values, then maybe there are contrary some other nation's values, and what do they have to say to each other? Um, in the book, third chapter, I talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was put out in 1948 by the United Nations, which in many ways is a wonderful document. But it's, 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 it was attacked by sociologists for being Western mm -hmm. values, and of course once Anybody opposed to some of the things in it sees has that attack mechanism. Western values. They'll, there was a, a conference that set up. Well, you know, we, we need to develop Asian values. We need to articulate Asian values. And then there was a, a declaration in Cairo, Cairo Declaration, that said, uh, well, you know, human, Universal Declaration of Human Rights is all well and good, but but we are going to have the Cairo um, interpretation of, of human rights and it's going to be based on Sharia law. So as soon as you're talking about values, you're, you're in danger of that kind of fragmentation. Uh, I don't think we can completely avoid the, the word values, but the foundation has to be something bigger than those individual you know, Canadian values. So do you see more dialogue, though? Is, it, is there more dialogue that you're seeing between the two? I, I, I really hope for more dialogue. That's, right. I can just express my, my hope. Um, but you've, you've headed out of the education system because you're not, you weren't hearing that dialogue, right? Well, yeah, and just to, I mean, if I can just clarify uh, what I was trying to say kind of Clark pointed out is just like this is what I found in the education system in the in the past we would have debates let's say you know what is um, nature Darwinism let's say mm -hmm. versus what ought to be faith mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and it's like faith versus what is 
right? And so that's simple in the New Atheist Movement. That was the same kind of thing, mm -hmm. modern time. Mm -hmm. But now it's like we're getting a new... Um, the, the what is are teaming up with now the faith people. Like now they're on the same time. It's like a buddy cop comedy. And they're facing up against the new faith, which is... Um, it's not based on what is. If you analyze and break it down, it has nothing to do with logic in any way, right, shape, or right, form. Right. It's a new type of faith. It's not existential. It's not religiously based, but it's faith, pure and simple. And that's where I'm. The problem to me is, how do you so you can't sort through that pragmatically and logically, because it's to me fundamentalist in nature. The same way we would look at like Jesus camp or, or stuff like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There is a certain kind of. Because I don't understand what your what kind of pragmatic ideas. I would butcher. I especially. Yeah. I would butcher. Well. Um, <laughs> What, what I'm hearing you describe is a kind of uh, secularist fundamentalism, right? So there's a debate going on now in, in Alberta about um, who gets to determine what children are taught, even in independent Christian schools. And so the Minister of Education in that government is saying, you know, uh, you, if you teach such and such things, then you're in contravention of the um, Alberta Education Act. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be able to decide that issue in just a few sentences, but what really struck me is I, I wanted the Minister of Education there to read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says that parents have a prior right to determine how and what children should be taught. He's completely ignoring that, and he's ignoring it because that's part of his government knows best secularist fundamentalism. It's not, not something he's even putting up to critical debate. It becomes mm -hmm. a, a struggle of power. And, and one of my points in the book is that when we lose a sense of questions potentially being decided on the basis of right, when we lose that, all we have left is might or political power. Mm -hmm. We're going to do that because we say so. so. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Is it um, moral relativism is a consequence of secularization? I mean, you could restore moral realism without any reference to religion? Or moral moral realism is necessarily attached to religious faith. I think that moral realism isn't necessarily attached to a specific religious faith. Um, I had dinner on Wednesday night with a very I hate to use the word diverse, but it was a diverse group of people, um, and it was hosted by a guy who's co-written books with the Dalai Lama. And so he, you know, had, had, th this book and Lewis's book had, has an appendix which lists various moral principles from, from different religious traditions, from Buddhism, from Sikhism, from Islam. Um, and on and on, and from different historical periods. 
So I think, in fact, that I think that moral relativism is really it's certainly being propelled and accelerated by secularism. Um, one of the women I had dinner with on Wednesday night came from Yugoslavia and she read my book and she really understood it. When she got to Canada, she asked a co-worker, well, so what, what are your, what are Canadians believe? What are Canadians values? And his answer was, well, no, we don't have Canadian values or general values. We sort of make up our own values. <laughs> and this, this was a sort of uh, secular self-invention of each individual. Um, I mean, the Tao, the, the reservoir of moral values that I'm trying to speak from and to, is, is cross-cultural and super-confessional. You can find, you know, Buddhists and Jews and Stoics and on and on, people who believe that there is something that truly is right and wrong. We might have to look hard for it. We might have to discuss carefully. But, but I do think it's, it's secularism by and large. Whether, whether, whether seculars, a seculars can find a way to the Tao, to moral realism, I wouldn't pretend to say. Well, you have someone like Peterson, who uh, may be a mystic, a Jungian mystic, or mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. agnostic, uh, but doesn't is is not a, a religious person, as far as I know, uh, from all that he has said. Right. Even though he lectures on the Bible, but he does try to find a basis in which to interpret, and it and it's slightly naturalistic yes yes I agree. Uh, you know looking at binaries and looking at evolutionary processes that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have developed us to act in certain ways to to favor strength and to favor weakness yep. and, and all these kind of things and sees an evolution of consciousness yes yes uh, so no, he is good, trying to develop uh, and I think that he's that's where people are really attracted to because he's really trying to find some commonality without an obligation to God. Right. And you notice how often in his writings he says, this is bad. Yes. This is good. Mm -hmm. he, he's quite free in, in the use of those terms. He doesn't apologize. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, um, yeah, in spite of his sort of semi-naturalistic etiology of, uh, of morality, um, he, he treats it as something that's real and not just something that is constructed for the nonce. Mm -hmm. Because he said, in, in response to what you were saying to Cody, that, or no, to you, to you, is that he was saying that uh, this kind of form of identity politics can become so fragmented, not just Cairo and uh, Canada charter rights versus international uh -huh, human uh -huh. rights, but he goes, it gets so particular that we would have to end up with each person's definition mm -hmm. of yep. their own rights. Yep. Rather than having some kind of transcultural. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. disturbs him. And he yeah. feels that that kind of chaos leads to authoritarianism or totalitarianism. Oh. Yes. He, yes. He feels, and he says, we have to find a basis. So, um, 
so he is terrified of this cultural relativism. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that he, he looks to the Bible as a source, um, even oh, though he yeah. doesn't believe it, but he believes that it um, indicates, you know, uh, Sharon Old wrote a poem, said, um, they love the priest instead of the God. And, and I find Peterson falls in that kind of, that line of yeah, thinking. Yeah. He loves the Bible, but doesn't, as far as I know, unless he's changed, because he does seem somewhat open to, to hearing. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't believe that there's a supernatural, transcendent basis to, to Scripture, but he wants some authority beyond personal opinion yes. or personal yeah. or creation of meaning out of nothing. Right, right. Uh, one of the quotes I read of his the other day was, there's no such thing as an atheist. It's just some acknowledge the deity they worship and others don't. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if that's apropos of what you're saying. Yeah. But yes? Um, you know, stumbling to this question, um, we had a discussion at lunch today, which is kind of an appropriate precursor to this talk. Um, when a student asked uh, whether our desire to have meaning and morality um, which seems to be shared by most people, um, can be an argument for God, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the existence of God. Because, if, you know, so, uh, yeah, like, we may draw these inferences, like, you can't have, act consistently um, unless you have that basis of for, for human dignity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't make it so, <laughs> even if we want it to be so, it doesn't uh, prove God's existence or whatever. Uh, so it, are there... And I know that Lewis um, uses this as an argument, like at the beginning of mere Christianity, like this desire for justice. Yeah. Um, and I would need to go back and read it to be able to summarize that more clearly. Um, yeah, but just because we have this longing for um, justice and morality, uh, is that is that like a, a good apologetic for God? Um, well, I, I think it's a good apologetic as far as it goes. I don't think it's a knockdown argument. Yeah. Um, but I've certainly come across people for whom it has been a decisive argument. Um, oh, years ago, I was adjudicating a set of applications in which people were proposing a project that had something to do with either the sociology or the history of religion. And this guy told his own story about how he had grown up believing in God and then looked around at the world and seen all the evil and sorrow in the world, uh, which outraged him. And um, for a time, he rejected God based on the evil that was in the world. And then at a certain point, he thought, why am I offended that there's evil in the world? So it was a kind of a moral that he didn't have anywhere to ground his moral repugnance mm. at the state of affairs in the world other than in something that he thought he had earlier left behind. Mm. And that was decisive in his pilgrimage, in his career path. Again, I'm not saying it's a knockdown argument, mm. but it was very, and I haven't put it as well as he put it, but his very sense of outrage against God was an argument for God. Mm -hmm. Right, so so part of the, the question today was um, if 
we if we do take this other tack and say, okay, well, maybe there is no God and it's meaningless, <laughs> and then we can pursue kind of whatever we want. Um, if there's still sort of some agreed upon idea that that morality is like a good thing, um, can can we sort of like act as if? Um, like, do we need to have that that basis, um, or do we have enough shared sort of conviction of morality that we can come up with something together by saying, for example, like you know, do unto others as you would have done unto you, and or sort of a karma idea. Y- yeah, right? yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> I, um, it seems a bit um, a bit of a stingy approach. Mm-hmm. Um, Say well, you know, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to commit myself to belief in a higher power. I'll just, I'll just act as if there is, and maybe that'll be good enough. And I, I don't know. Maybe it's. I mean, I've, I've heard people in. In my own hearing in recent weeks. Who explained that they started out reluctantly believing in a higher power and through experience through thought sometimes really difficult experience they would actually start praying to this higher power and then the relationship grew so I, I don't see anything uh, despicable about that way of starting. It seems we're, as Christians, I imagine most of us are Christians here, and we're missing out on something quite important in trying to understand uh, what I would call moral relativism and religious relativism. And that is, why do people believe in these, uh, in these philosophies or ideologies? And I don't think it's correct just to say, well, you kind of look at the argument itself and show where it's logically flawed. You describe scientism and uh, naturalism, and it's uh, you're kind of, to my mind, belaboring the obvious. You know, it's basically making a false assumption about the nature of reality. In other words, reality is just uh, just nature. Yeah. And you're making a false epistemological assumption, basically assuming. The only uh, valid form of knowledge is science, yeah. and uh, let's say poetry or philosophy are mm-hmm. ways of arriving at uh, objective knowledge. Yeah. Now that is all fine, but you know if you if you look at someone let's say like Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book called Sources of the Self and other books, mm-hmm. and he looks at the history of the self, the modern self, mm-hmm. and how it came about. You know, then you have to look at such things as, for example, the religious wars. You know, why did you have religious relativism? You had the religious wars that went from the start of the Reformation through till, what was it, uh, 30 Years' War, 1618 to 1648. Right. You know, Europe was destroying itself. Christians were killing each other. So a lot of people said, well, you know, we, there's no way of arriving at any kind of objective religious truth. You know, even like Christians can't agree on anything. Or, you know, start if they agree on basic things like they believe in the divinity of Christ, but, you know, there's all these other disagreements. Sure. So society is, you know, like coming apart at the seams. So how are we going to 
move beyond this. Mm -hmm. They had mm -hmm. fought through a stalemate. Yeah. There's, you know, there's just nothing left, no fight left on either side. So they said, well, what we're going to have to do is have some kind of secular society. The only way to arrive at peace is through secularism. So like part of our problem here is what I would say lack of ecumenism. Christians working together, generally working together to restore Christian unity. Right, that's one right, thing. Right. And, uh, you know, so that's, so you got you can kind of understand, I mean, the, the secular side of things. They say, how can I believe you that there's a kind of objective religious truth when there's so many different opinions out there and you can't, you know, you can't come to any agreement. And the same thing with, um, you know, it relates to strong moral differences of opinion too. And, you know, I mean, I've been involved in the pro-life movement for 40 years and, you know, the debating, 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 and it never seems to, never seems to end. So there's, I'm just saying there's something before that yes, that we have yes. to be aware of. Yeah. And uh, part of it is a Christian witness, yes. and, uh, which hasn't been very good. And uh, and and, and other, there's, there's something else too. Yeah, so, yeah you're, you're putting your finger on something very important. I think one of the, I think you're right that one of the reasons for secularism, one of the reasons for um, an avoidance of any religiously tinged claim about right and wrong, is is the danger of dogmatism and you know you can have dogmatism on both sides of the Thirty Years' War, for example. Um, the counterbalancing difficulty is moral paralysis. I read an article yesterday or today on Deutsche Welle. Uh, it was a, a German man who was talking about his grandparents' behavior in Kristallnacht, uh, which was 80 years ago yesterday or today. The pogrom that spread across all of Germany and synagogues and Jewish shops were trashed and smashed and burned. And his grandparents were good Catholics who suffered from the moral paralysis of, you know, 100, 200, 200 years of enlightenment. Well, who are we to say that this is wrong? Right? So there's a lack of moral paralysis and lack of conviction, which permits evil to, to happen. So, I mean, I, I, I certainly take your point that there's a certain uh, dogmatism that has been real and historical um, that has led to skepticism about how sure we can be one way or the other. But that has its own dangers. I could offer one, one last thing and I'll shut my up. Um, yeah, I have an idea, I, I thought about it, like what I think it might be come from a little bit is like similar to like Charles Taylor, secularization definitely I think has a lot to do with it, um, these changes is what I mean, but if you go back in time in America for example, it's a lot of its culture, and I mean that's that's a loaded word, but the, the structure of society was held together by certain principles or axioms, right? And, and that is, I mean, education, development, part of that secularization, but that's, that's undergirded maybe by, um, by religious beliefs that everyone should have universal education or whatever. But anyway, my point is that it, to me it really is the individual. It's this, this um, the development of this um, 
elevation of individualism that is really causing this problem because it's creating to me narcissism um, on a on a structural level, not just this this belief, this mania, but when you create structures in society that increasingly develop that that individualism. Like an example of what I'm trying to say is like, yeah, we believe narcissistic beliefs, but then we create like um, developments in society that would further that. So like the birth control pill, and not that I'm saying that's evil or anything like that, but I'm just saying organically mm -hmm. we hem mm -hmm. ourselves in mm -hmm. by individualism and it's pragmatic like it's structural it happens um and then all of a sudden we wake up one day and we're like okay nothing my family unit isn't sacred the the you lo loving your neighbors isn't sacred anymore um these previously held axioms are no longer relevant and now it's every man for himself and now it's tribalism and now it's this war of narratives where mm -hmm. we don't go to church but now it's um, hierarchy is a bad word and you on and on and on you go through the litany but that's my two cents yeah and individualism is also the, the air that we breathe right so we're not even aware of how individualistic our assumptions are well, I want to thank you for your talk. It's uh, 9.05. That clock is wrong. It's not 10.07. <laughs> it's 9.07. Um, it hasn't been changed for the time change. But I just want to thank you for your thoughts. And you've given us a lot to think about. And I'm sure discussions could go late into the night. But we'll have mercy on you and <laughs> on anyone else. But uh, I just want to say thank you. Well, it's my pleasure, and, and you guys are so patient with an academic up here. Um, I really, really appreciate your, you know, you, I haven't seen anybody just fade out, so thank you. Privilege. I'll put this up here with the others.